If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open up to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6. And we're going to make an attempt today to actually finish out the book of Esther in a one-shot deal. I don't normally do this. You all know how I am. Uh, if you've been here with us before, you know I don't normally do something like this. But um, we got to spend a couple of weeks, the last uh, few weeks, with our son in, in Cosair Children's Hospital. So I'm going to try to bring Esther together this morning uh, and, and wrap this book up so that we can uh, start Mark on schedule uh, here in a couple of weeks. This series is uh, called Behind the Scenes. And what we've been talking about through this book of Esther is how God so often reveals himself in unseen ways. It's, it's this idea that's often been referred to as the hiddenness of God. That, that for so much of our lives, so much of our experience in this world, God seems at best distant. Oftentimes, He even seems absent. When we go through difficulties, trials, and, and tribulations in life and and the first questions that begin to emerge in us, I believe that these are questions that God puts into the souls of mankind, is where is God? Where is God in the midst of my suffering? Where is He when I'm going through the darkest times of my life? It seems like God is absent. He's at very least doing a really good job of hiding Himself. You see, sometimes we think about God like we think about this character from my childhood. How many of you guys remember this guy? All right, what's his name? Waldo. Waldo. Okay, you all did better than the early service. They were kind of looking at me like I had three heads. Uh, this is where, I call him Where's Waldo. I know his name is Waldo. But we all know him from the Where's Waldo books. And, and, and Where's Waldo was created by an English sketch artist that loved to draw crowds. He loved to, to sketch crowds of people just doing a variety of different things. That was kind of his deal. But in order to get a book published, the publisher said, you know, nobody's really going to want to look at, at these sketches. You really need something to draw people's attention. And so he created this guy that we know as Waldo. 1987, the first book was released, and, and it was full of pictures like this. Many of you all have seen these. I know you're already looking for Waldo. I can see y'all pointing already. I knew this was going to happen. And growing up, I can remember, later on in my elementary school years, these books were released, and, and you begin to look through these crowds, and there's all kinds of interesting characters in the crowds, by the way. In fact, there were some school systems that banned these books because of some of the things that this guy drew into the crowds. I won't go into that for now. You can look it up on your own time. But you look for Waldo, right? And it ought to be easy to find Waldo. I mean, the dude is wearing, he's like just like a candy cane. Red and white striped shirt with the fuzzy toboggan on his head. It ought to be really easy to find Waldo, and yet so often he remains hidden. And for those of you that are just dying to know where Waldo is, I'm going to help you out today. There he is, okay? Right there next to the big red arrow, there is Waldo in that particular scene. So now you can go home having been fulfilled with the finding of Waldo this morning. But just like where's Waldo, when we come to times in our lives when God seems to be hidden in the midst of the crowd, and we come to a book like Esther, Esther is the only book in the entire scripture where God is never mentioned. 
There's no mention of God. There's no mention of worship. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the temple, the place where people's, God's people worshipped in the Old Testament. There's no mention of anything even remotely spiritual. The closest thing we can find is a one mention of fasting. Other than that, the book of Esther at face value looks as though it is a completely secular book, devoid of God altogether. And for many of us, we can relate with the book of Esther because that's how so much of our lives seems to be. We go through long periods of time in our lives where God seems distant, perhaps even absent. In the midst of it, we cry out, God, where are you? I want to encourage you today to see the hidden God. We're going to walk through these last few chapters of Esther, and I want to point out some places where I believe hiding behind the scenes, we see God working, orchestrating things that would not have otherwise happened. If you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word this morning, would you, would you stand as we read Esther chapter 6? Just a real quick synopsis for those of you that haven't been with us. Basically, the book of Esther starts out with the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus. And he is a prideful, self-consumed guy who can't seem to make any decisions for himself. And in the midst of his situation in chapter 1, King Ahasuerus gets rid of his queen. She does something that he doesn't like and he gets rid of her. And is on the search in chapter 2 for a new queen and ends up having Esther, this young orphaned Jewish girl, as his new queen. Chapter 2 goes into chapter 3. We meet a guy named Haman. Haman is the villain in the story. He is the enemy of God's people. He is out to destroy the Jews because of a 1,500-year blood feud between the Amalekites and the Jewish people. Haman, being a descendant of Amalek, of the Amalekites, is wanting to destroy the Jews. And that's what's beginning to happen in chapter 3. And he convinces King Ahasuerus to enact an edict, a command, a decree. A law was put into place that 11 months later, the Jewish people in the country, in the nationality, the empire of Persia, would be destroyed. By the way, there were approximately 15 million Jews living among the 100 million population of the empire of Persia. And the villain Haman convinces the king to do away with them because he sees them as a threat to his empire. All that being said, everything's going from bad to worse for the Jews until we come to chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1. It says, On that night, on that particular night that we'll talk more about in a moment, on that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the books of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai, this is Esther's cousin who had raised her as his own and, and, and had, been, had a prominent place somewhere in the government, that this Mordecai, this Jewish man, had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, in other words, to assassinate him. And we saw that in chapter 2, Mordecai had become aware of this assassination plot. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? This event that happened five years prior. What, what did we do for Mordecai for saving my life? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. 
And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman, this is our villain, had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. You see that in chapter 5. He built a gallows that were 75 feet above the, the ground to, to make a spectacle of Mordecai's death. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Notice the question. What should be done to the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, the villain, full of pride, said to himself, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, here's the plan. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Basically, the picture is here, do for the man you want to honor like would be done for a new king. This is like a coronation picture. Haman is looking to set himself up here as a potential next king. Then it all comes down in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. And wouldn't you have loved to have seen Haman's face? I mean, just honestly, wouldn't you have loved to have seen his mortal enemy is now receiving the reward that he dictated? So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before, you, who, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived, and they hurried to bring him to the feast that Esther had prepared. You can be seated. Father, I make this simple prayer for us. Open our eyes to see the hidden God. Not just in these pages of Scripture that you've given to us, but also to see the hidden God hiding within all of the pages of our lives. And that you are the sovereign God who providentially orders all the events of history according to your perfect plan and your purpose, which is for the good of your people and the glory of your name. And Lord, help us to respond to you as we see here. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
as you study the book of Esther, you, you find this, that this book is perfectly divided into two halves that mirror one another. Let me give you some examples. Esther chapter 1, the book begins with a feast where King Ahasuerus is proclaiming his greatness before his people. But as we'll see as you come to the end of the book of Esther, in the final chapters, there's also a feast. But this feast is not one for Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, to proclaim his greatness. This is now a feast in which God's people, the Jews, are proclaiming the greatness of their God. We'll talk more about that before we finish. In fact, you see, between the dividing line, between the two halves that mirror one another, you'll see there are actually three feasts that take place on either end of this book. And we also find, as we'll see in a few moments, that there are two decrees by the king in this book. One that happens before the dividing line and one that happens after. This book lays open perfectly into two sections that mirror one another. In the first section, you see the rise of this villain named Haman, the hater of the Jews, the descendant of Amalek who was following through on a 1,500-year blood feud between these two nations, the Amalekites and the Israelites. That had begun in the days of Moses when the Amalekites had sought to attack and to conquer the Israelites on their way into the Promised Land. And God had promised in that day that the Amalekites would be wiped from the face of the earth because of their strike against the people of God. Thinking back to what God said to Abraham, the the founder of the Jewish people, God said to Abraham, those who bless you, I'm going to bless, and those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And because Amalek decided to be a curse to the Israelites, there was this blood feud that lasted for 1,500 years. And now you've got Haman and Mordecai, representatives of this feud. Haman, this hater of the Jews, and Mordecai, this Jewish man leader. For the first five chapters of this book, though, it seems like Mordecai gets less and less, and Haman gets greater and greater. That's the progression in the first five chapters, is Haman just goes from bad to worse. He's getting more and more prominent. He's gaining more and more recognition. He becomes second in command to the king. He is the only one in chapter 5 who is invited to a private feast The king, the queen, Esther, and Haman were the only ones that were invited to this particular feast in chapter 5. And Haman's head is like this. I mean, he is full of pride, thinking so much of himself at this point. At the end of chapter 5, Haman is walking on air until he sees Mordecai, his mortal enemy, who won't even rise when Haman walks by. Doesn't even pay him any mind. That wasn't saying necessarily that Mordecai was being disrespectful. He just wasn't paying mind to Haman one way or the other. And he's livid. And he sets out to do the deed of destroying Mordecai before the sun sets that next day. So he builds this gallows. And it looks like at the end of chapter 5 that all is lost. Mordecai is going to die on the gallows. The Jews are going to be annihilated. God's people are going to be destroyed. And all the promises of the Old Testament are going to end here. But then God steps in. Here's what I want you to consider. If you were writing this story, and some of you in this room are writers, if you were writing this story, where would you place the turning point? The climax of the story. 
Like the high point, the point when everything changes, where would that be? Because, man, there's some great ones. You look in chapter 4, and Mordecai becomes aware of this threat against the Jewish people, that the edict has been made, that they're all going to be destroyed. He, he, he contacts Queen Esther through a series of, of other messengers and, and says, okay, you've got to do something here. And, and Esther's like, uh, I really can't come before the king unless he calls me to do so at risk of my own life. If you came before the king in that day without being called, you could be put to death. And Esther's kind of like bowing out going, I don't really think I want to mess with that. And then Mordecai makes this great statement that's kind of the theme of this book in, in many ways. In chapter 4, Mordecai says, But who knows that you have come to this place in the kingdom, and here's the phrase, for such a time as this. And I'm reading it going, that's the turning point right there, right? I mean, that's the moment. That's the, that, when you put this up on the big screen, I mean, that's what you want. To, you want everybody to be rejoicing at that point, crying out, man, Esther's awesome. And Mordecai is calling her out here. And then, and then she responds this way. She says, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. I mean, this is like Braveheart. You know, when he's riding before the troops, and he's just... If we're gonna if we're gonna die, we're gonna die free. You know that whole that whole scene that happens there. I wish I could show it this morning. I just love that scene in Braveheart. But that's Esther here in chapter four. If I perish, I perish, and you go turning point. Like that's the climax, right? But it's not. You say, well, maybe it's when she actually three days later. After the time of their, their fasting and coming before the Lord, maybe that's that point when she actually goes before the king there in chapter 5 and she, she comes before him and he extends his scepter to her and, and allows her the grace to, to speak. But that's not it either. This book splits right down the middle at the first verse of chapter 6. Let me show it to you. Maybe I will. There we go. Esther 6.1. Here's the turning point. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now, how many of you are less than thrilled by that? This is kind of anticlimactic, right? I mean, you've had, you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've had, if I perish, I perish. You've had the scene of her going boldly before the king and him giving her mercy and grace, recognizing her and allowing her to speak before him. You've had some awesome moments in this book. And yet the turning point of the entire book happens in Esther 6.1. On that night, the king could not sleep. The stinking king's insomnia is the turning point of the entire book. And we kind of go... What? Like, surely, God, you miswrote this whole deal here. And yet what it reminds us of, it reminds us of this reality of how God so often works the miraculous in the Monday. A sleepless night. How many of us have those? For some reason, at four-something this morning, I woke up and could not go back to sleep, even though I knew that my alarm was not set for about another hour. And I'm just laying there staring at the ceiling. I don't make scripture for that. But on the night that the king couldn't sleep, it became the turning point for all that God was going to do. The first place we see God there on your outlines, we see God in the humdrum routine of our life. Well, we are so quick, if you're like me, we are so quick to want to see God in the big moments. 
I mean, we want the splitting of the Red Sea. We want the raising of the dead. We want the blonde to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to leap. We want, we want all those great miracles. But the thought of the God who primarily works in the mundane, humdrum, everyday points in our lives just isn't all that exciting. I mean, we love Mordecai. Who knows you came to the kingdom for such a time as this, and we go, yeah, that's an awesome moment. We love Esther. If I perish, I perish. We don't really love Esther 6.1. And that night, the king could not sleep, and we go, big whoop. So what's God trying to say? God's trying to show us here in this simple verse that becomes the turning point for the entire story. Within the course of 24 hours, the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai becomes his place of death. He's hanged on his own gallows. Within short order after that, the edict that called for the destruction of 10 million Jews and the end of all the Old Testament promises of God Remember, if the Jews die out in the Old Testament, there is no Jesus coming because he is a Jewish man. All those promises are gone. And then in just a course, as a result of this moment, that edict is turned. Everything changes. As you, if you were to read this book from beginning to end, there's this slope that happens toward this moment, and then everything is reversed. Everything's turned upside down. The king couldn't sleep. And of all the entertainments, we'll say, that the king could have called for, and we've seen him be pretty entertained in previous chapters. He had a whole harem full of women that he liked to use and abuse. He liked his alcohol a little too much. There's all kinds of things that he could have sought after in that moment. He calls for one of his servants to read to him the book of the Chronicles. Now, this is, what, this is what this deal was. All the kings had a court recorder who would basically write down everything that the king did. I mean, I guess if the dude went to the bathroom, somebody's writing it down. I mean, it's really kind of crazy. You read back over these, and it was just, these guys were such egomaniacs. They wanted a record of everything that happened in their lives. And so he says, okay, come bring, bring in this book and read to me about all my great deeds. Again, prideful, arrogant, all these things. And the court, the recorder there, the servant, just so happens to open to a place in the King's Chronicle, just so happened, by the way, to open to a place in the King's Chronicle, an event that had occurred five years before that night. The day on which Mordecai learned of a plot against the king, told Queen Esther, she told the king, the king's life was saved, and Mordecai went unrewarded. Now there's two things you need to understand about Persian kings. First of all, they were experts at destroying their enemies. In fact, that's why he was so quick to sign the edict against the Jews. He saw them as an enemy and said, okay, we've got to destroy these people because that's what Persians did to their enemies. We just destroy them. We, we, we act first and ask questions later, and that's what was happening in the midst of all this. They were good at destroying their enemies, but they were also very good at rewarding their friends. To become a friend of the king, we see with Haman here, there was all kinds of benefits to getting close and buddy-buddy with the king 
And so the king asks this question. When the, when the record is read, he hears about Mordecai, all the good things that he did. He says, well, so what do we do for him? Expecting to hear of all the great honors and rewards that were given to Mordecai. And the guy says, well, there's, there's been an oversight. We didn't do anything for him. And that just couldn't stand. And so the king begins to lay out following the plan and purpose of God that he would lay asleep, that he would lay awake that night unable to sleep, the king begins to follow in step with the plan of a greater king. Haman just so happens to come in and we see him and he thinks so pridefully to himself when the king asks, what should I do for somebody I want to honor? Who else would the king want to honor except for me? I mean, this is the height of pride, isn't it? I mean, you can see this dude's big head. I mean, who else would it be? Obviously, the king is just trying to ask me in a a humble way. He doesn't want to just say, what do you want me to do for you? He wants wants to give me the opportunity to kind of have a, a moment of grace here. And then God turns it all around in that moment. Haman lays out this great plan. Basically, do it for him what you would do for the next king. Put him in royal robes, put him on a royal horse and and trot him around the city and let everybody know what a great guy he is. Haman's in his mind thinking, this is going to be fun. And then the king says, that sounds really great. Go and do that for Mordecai. Again, I I just, I would love to see Haman's face in that moment. Just to know uh, what, what he was experiencing because the Bible says the pride goeth before the fall. There's this moment that begins right there when everything is turned. Let me just say something real quick before we move on. I think we need to learn to appreciate the fact that God most often works in the mundane, humdrum, routine places of our life. Because we love the Red Sea moments. We love when God drops the plagues and when he raises the the dead and when he heals the blind. We love the miraculous. But folks, we need to learn to see God in the miraculous. And the miraculous so often occurs in the mundane, in the everyday. That every detail of your life, the Bible says your steps are ordered by God. Not just the big steps, every step. Every minute detail of your life, if you believe in the God of this Bible, what you're saying about this God is this. This this Bible teaches of a God who is so sovereign that there is nothing that escapes his notice. Jesus said if he cares about the birds of the field, don't you think he cares more about you? If he's concerned about feeding the sparrows, don't you think that he has enough concern for you? So why are you worried about your life, Jesus said. God's got this. This is the God that we serve. It's a bigger God than we often think of. And it's necessary that we see him in that way. We see him in the humdrum routine. Secondly, we see this God in his heroic rescue. You look at chapter 7 and 8. We don't have time to look at a lot of this. But basically, again, everything's turned on its ear. Everything that was set in motion to destroy the Jews now turns out for the salvation of the Jews. There was an edict made in in chapter 3 that Haman creates this edict that that everybody is going to go out and destroy the Jewish people. 
Now, for a Persian king, when you made a law, that law could never be overturned. Here's why. The Persians basically viewed their, their kings as miniature gods, and God can't make a mistake. So if the king makes a law, that law was considered to be eternal and could not be overturned. And so what do you do? You see, when Mordecai was given the power that Haman used to have, that happens there at the end of chapter 16 and chapter 7, Mordecai knows we can't just undo the king's law, but we've got to figure out a way around this. And so he enacts an edict, a law, a command from the king to enable the Jews simply to defend themselves. That's what you see happening in these next couple of chapters. Is the Jews are given the authority to defend themselves. And so they do. And you see the contrast in Esther 4.3 versus chapter 8. In Esther 4, this was the first edict of the king. This is Haman saying, go out and, and destroy all the Jews. And in every province, wherever that command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. That's what was happening in chapter 4. Then the king couldn't sleep one night, and everything turns on its head. And in chapter 8, and in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, sounds familiar, doesn't it? There was gladness. It's completely opposite. Joy, a feast, and a holiday. Same group of people. The same Jews who were, at the first edict, led to a place of weeping and mourning are now rejoicing at the second edict because of the heroic rescue. And before we go on, I just want to say this. When we think about the heroic rescue in this book, we oftentimes think of Esther. And yes, her name is on the title page, but the real hero here is God. The real hero here is God who set into motion a series of events that would sustain, preserve, and rescue his people before they even knew they needed rescuing. Mordecai was right. Who put Esther on the throne? Was it King Ahasuerus? If you believe that, you're missing the whole point. Who put Esther on the throne? God did. According to his purposes, to rescue his people before they even knew they needed to be rescued. And the same is true for us as we'll see before we finish today. So we see him in his heroic rescue. Thirdly, we see him in the humble response of God's people. Look at chapter 9. I want to show you a couple of things here. So the new edict has come. There's been rejoicing in the land over, over the fact that now the Jews can defend themselves against their enemies. And in chapter 9, they do just that. But there was one part of the edict in chapter 8 that we left out. And it was this idea that he was basically trying, Mordecai was trying to mirror in his edict, in his law, the very thing that Haman had had. It's almost word for word the same, except for now the Jews can stand up for themselves and can, and can defend themselves against their enemies. One of the aspects of Haman's law that caused the people of Persia to want to rise up against the Jews was he said to them, and you can take all their stuff. You can plunder them. If you go out and kill the Jews, you can have all of their stuff. And this caused people to get kind of excited. We can take all their stuff. We can kill these folks, don't have any retribution for it, and take all their stuff. This sounds like a good deal. And so in Mordecai's law, when he was, when he was making his law here in chapter 8, he says the same thing. Jews, you can rise up. You can defend yourselves against your enemies, not necessarily attacking others who have not, uh, not provoked you. But if someone rises against you, you are, are allowed to defend yourselves. And if you take someone's life, you can take for yourself the plunder. You read it in chapter 8. But then in chapter 9, three times it says this. 
but they laid no hand on the plunder. Three times. Why is anything ever repeated in the Scriptures? Because it's important. If you find something that's repeated in the Scriptures, especially like this three times within just a few verses, the Scriptures are calling us to say, okay, why, why is that there? Why is that important? But they laid no hand on the plunder. And I think two things were happening here. First of all, they were recognizing who their rescuer truly was. They were recognizing that their mere ability to stand up for themselves was only because their God had first stood up for them. They were reminded of the days when they first entered into the promised land in the days when Joshua was leading them. And they went into the promised land and God promised them much plunder in the promised land. There was going to be many good things for them in the promised land. But God asked one thing of them. He said, you're going to find one city. When you first cross over the Jordan River, there's going to be a city not too far from there. It's called Jericho. And here's what I'm asking of you. I'm going to give you this whole land. All that I promised to Abraham is going to be yours. But here's my request. That everything within the walls of the city of Jericho be dedicated to me. You can plunder every other city. You can keep all the other places for yourselves. But let the city of Jericho be dedicated to me. Keep no plunder for yourselves. Now, there was one dude you can read about there in the book of, of Joshua who disobeyed God's command. There was a lot of punishment that came as a result of him keeping some of the plunder for himself. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. But I think there was a recognition here by these Jews. Now, hundreds of years later, and living in the time of Esther, the recognition that their victory in chapter 9 was not because of their greatness, but because of the greatness of their God. And keeping no plunder for themselves was a reminder that they had been rescued by God and it was a dedication of those things to Him. A reminder, He has been great on our behalf. But I'd say it's also a second thing. It's a reminder that there are often times in the lives of God's people when we must lay aside our rights to do what is ultimately right in God's sight. Paul talks about this a great deal in the book of 1 Corinthians. That there are many times in our Christian experience when we must set aside our rights, what we have the right to do, in order to do what is truly right in God's sight. This is hard. Because I'm sure there would have been some that would have looked at the plunder on that day and said, don't we deserve to have their houses? Did they not rise up against us? It says that there were 75,000 Persians who decided to rise up against the Jews and were killed. Don't, don't, we, don't we deserve to have these things? Our enemy rose up against us. Don't we deserve to have this plunder? But in order to honor God, they chose instead to set aside their rights. Even what the king guaranteed to them in his law, they set aside their rights in order to do a right that was greater. Church, that has many implications for us. We live in a land where our rights are exalted at every turn. But there are so many places in the Christian life, so many places where it it is important, necessary even, for us to set aside those rights that we might do a greater good. And finally, we'll end here this morning. We see the hidden God in a happy reminder. Look at the end of chapter 9. 
At the end of chapter 9, we find this, this feast. This book begins with a feast and ends with a feast. And at the end of chapter 9, we see a new feast for the Jewish people. Throughout the Jewish year, there were seven different feasts that were had. There were constantly celebrations of the goodness of God being had by his people. I would say this, Christians, we could learn a lot from the Jews in this. We could do a lot better at celebrating what we have in our God. There were seven feasts, and then this one is added on to those feasts. The feasts began at the beginning of the year with a feast that we know of called Passover. And Passover feast was a reminder of how God had delivered his people when they were in slavery in Egypt, what God had done through Moses in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. The Passover was a reminder that the angel of death had passed over the Jews in taking the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians, which led to their being released as slaves of Egypt. The Passover is where they began. In fact, I'll tell you this. Haman, who wrote that first law into effect, he wrote that law into effect and it was sent out to everyone during the time of the Passover. What should have been a day of great rejoicing became, as we saw in chapter 4 there, a day of great mourning and sadness because they saw their destruction coming. But then we see in chapter 9, everything's turned around. Chapter 9, verse 24, it says, For Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, he had cast her, that was what we saw in chapter 3, that is, he cast lots. He basically rolled the dice to see which day would be the best day to call for the destruction of the Jews. He cast her, he cast lots. And therefore, verse 26, Therefore, they called these days Purim, that's the plural of Pur. They called these days Purim after the term Pur that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim. Now you go, okay, what's the big deal there? Well, it's just a little odd. I mean, I can see wanting to celebrate on this particular day. That instead of the 10 million Jews being wiped out by the Persians, instead they've had the victory. Everything's been turned on its head because one night when the king couldn't sleep, God set into motion a series of events that led to their deliverance. I can see you wanting to celebrate that. But I mean, call it Esther's feast. And call it Mordecai's feast. And call it anything you want to call it. But why would you call it Purim? Because those were the, that was the reminder of the very instrument that was used by their enemy to seek their destruction. The casting of lots, the rolling of the dice. Haman was trusting in fate. He was trusting in his false gods to give him the right day in order to enact his vengeance upon the Jews. Why would you use the Purim, the reminder of the very instrument your enemy used against you, as the name for the feast to celebrate your deliverance. It just sounds weird. I mean, they might as well have called it Haman's Feast if they're going to do that. The answer lies, folks, in the very heart of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. Just as the Jews chose the object of their destruction, or at least intended destruction, as the name by which they would celebrate year after year. 
Every year from then forward, we'll begin with Passover, a reminder of God's deliverance, and end with Purim, a reminder of God's deliverance. Just as the Jews would choose a reminder of the tactics of their enemy as the source of their rejoicing, so we choose the cross. The world looks at Christians and, and and we're an odd lot. Why would you choose the cross, a cruel instrument of torture, as your primary symbol? No matter whether you put it in gold and wear it around your neck or not, the cross is still nothing more in its very basis than just an executioner's tool. You might as well choose a guillotine. You might as well choose a hangman's noose. You might as well choose an electric chair. In the same way that the the Jews chose the instrument of their destruction to remind them of their deliverance, so do we. And so we look to the cross, that which is foolishness to the world. In it we see the power of God on display. By the way, Proverbs 16.33, I love this verse. In light of what we see in the book of Esther, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from who? The Lord. God was not at all unaware of the day that would be chosen by the casting of Haman's lot. And in fact, God so orchestrated events that there would be 11 months between the casting of the lot and the carrying out of the decree in order for God's people to to find deliverance. He is faithful. So what do we do with all this? I want to give you four take-homes today, and we'll we'll go warm through these pretty quickly, but I want to give you four take-homes today as we think about the book of Esther and and its implications for our lives. First of all, the first one of these is this, that God often, I would say most often, works the miraculous in the mundane. And as long as we are living in a place of faith, we're constantly looking for splitting the Red Sea experiences and the raising of the dead and the healing of the blind. As long as we're looking for those kind of miracles, what, what, what the problem there is is we, we end up missing what God is doing every day of our lives. Henry Blackaby said it so well in the early chapters of his book called Experiencing God. He made this statement that stuck with me since I was the first read it as a teenager. He said this, God is at work. Say that with me. God is at work. That sounds like such a a mundane statement. God is at work, okay? But here's what it means. It's not just that God was at work. We look in the pages of Scripture and we go, yeah, man, God was at work. He was doing amazing things. Look at all the things that God did. And we forget that the same God who was working here is working in our lives. God is at work. And we expect his soon return to redeem his people, to restore us into the right place with him and and to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And we go, yeah, man, God is going to be at work. God will be at work. But we forget that God is at work. And we get in these mundane, humdrum, routine parts of our lives where nothing really shines or sparkles anymore. And we forget that every day is a gift from God. Every moment is ordered by His sovereignty. 
Every stinking instance in your life came because of the providence of God who loves you and wants the best for you. You say, well, what about that dark period in my life? If you are in Jesus Christ, He will redeem every place of darkness. Secondly, this God will turn rejection into rejoicing and He will turn fasting into feasting. This is the promise for God's people. If you are apart from Jesus Christ today, if you have not trusted Him by faith and entered into that right relationship with God through Him, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this truth does not hold true for you. In fact, the opposite will very much be as it was for Haman, a man whose life was full of feasting and rejoicing at the end of his days became a place of great devastation. And only God can do this. Only God can turn things in this direction. Number three, that God prizes the humble and humbles the prideful. This is what you see with Mordecai and Haman. They are such great examples to us to remember. Haman in a negative way and Mordecai in the positive. You see that God is constantly about prizing those who are humble. That's Mordecai. Even when he was exalted on the king's steed with the king's robe and the king's crown, it says when that whole escapade was over, it says simply this, and Mordecai went back to the king's gate. He didn't get the big head. He didn't glory in what had just happened. He was still mindful that the destruction of his people was coming. He just went back to his duty, went back to his work. God prizes the humble, and he humbles the prideful. And lastly, number four, God will work our deliverance and has worked our deliverance through an object of destruction. See, folks, I believe ultimately the book of Esther, like every book in this Bible, is meant to direct our gaze back to the cross of Jesus Christ. That just as the lots in Haman's hand became the symbol for their deliverance. So the hands of our Savior who were pierced upon those two pieces of wood became not just the symbol for but the solution to our deliverance. In church, we have much to celebrate. In the most humdrum, mundane, routine points in your life, if you are walking with Jesus Christ by faith, if you've been delivered from your sins and rescued by His grace at the cross, you have much to celebrate. We also have much to proclaim. That though the Feast of Purim was only for the Jews, the way of salvation through Jesus Christ is open to all people. As the king's men went out with the edict that would bring about the deliverance of the Jewish people, so we should go out to people of every tribe and tongue and nation to our neighbors and to our co-workers, to our family members, to our friends and our enemies and proclaim to them 
that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was perfect in every way, died on the cross not just to make a spectacle for people to wonder at. He died on the cross so that we could be saved. A salvation greater than Purim ever thought about being. It's found at the cross. And that's what we celebrate today. I'll leave you with Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God flipped the script just as he did in the book of Esther. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, he became a curse so that you could be blessed by God. He took the death that should have been ours. So that we could have the life we never could have deserved. He stepped into the darkness of our world. The very light of God in the flesh. And he who knew no sin of his own became sin for us. So that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, we have much to celebrate. Father God, as we finish out today, God, I'm just thinking about your love for us. That your love has has caused you to go to extremes for us. Lord, so often we, we come into places like this and when we hear uh, of your goodness, we hear of your grace, we hear uh, of your sovereignty and your purpose and how you're uh, working all things for the good of those who love you. And look, we hear these things, but then we walk away and act as if you are distant at best and at worst not even real. Forgive us, God. Teach us to see you in the mundane. Teach us to see you in our rescue. Teach us to see you in those places of humility that are wrought by your spirit in our lives. When we choose not to cling to our rights, but in following the example of Jesus, who clung not to his right to God, we lay aside those rights for the good of others and the glory of our God. And help us most of all, Father, to see you in what was meant as an instrument of destruction, to see your high and holy work at that lowly cross and to rejoice, to rejoice in our King who laid aside his crown for a crown of thorns. The one who should have been exalted by every tongue was mocked and spit upon
He was scourged so that we could be healed. Fix that in our minds, Lord, and may we live according to what we see there at the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. We're going to share this final song today. We're going to sing our way out with this song. We invite you to consider what we've talked about this morning, to find your way perhaps to a place of prayer here on either side. Kent and I will be here at the front. There is nothing special about us, but we would be, we would take it as a privilege to share with you from God's Word how you can know Christ as your Savior. In whatever way you would respond to the Word of God this morning, we invite you to do so. We go out thinking about the love of God today. I just want to encourage you in a, in a couple of things. First of all, if you are new with us today or, or just been around a short time, we want to we want you to know this morning that it really is our desire to get to know you personally. We believe in a personal God, created each of us in his image, and has called us not to be like Waldo fading into the crowd, but to know one another and to get to know each other more and more as we grow in Christ together. And if God's bringing that about in your heart and you would want to take the next step uh, toward getting to, to know us as a church body, we want to invite you right after this service. It's happening today, right across the way in, in our youth center, straight across the parking lot. You can't miss it. Uh, we have today what we call our party with the pastors. And I know that a party with pastors doesn't sound like it'll be much fun, but we promise two things. We will feed you well. There's going to be cake, right, Ken? Okay, you got cake, that's good. We're going to feed you lunch, feed you cake, and we will still get you out of here in time to go home and have a good nap today. That's what Sunday afternoons are for. But we want to get to know you a little bit more along the way. So if you've not been to party with the pastors and you're new within the last six months or so, we would love to have you there. Uh, no cost associated, just show up. We'll feed you and we'll, we'll get you home uh, by 2 o'clock this afternoon. Beyond that, if you're looking for a place to connect with others tonight, 5 p.m. right here in this room. We have what we call 5T. It's small groups. It's easy to hide in a group like this. If you want to come out of hiding and begin to know others and grow in Christ together, that's a great place for that to happen. Don't forget in two weeks. Two weeks from today, we are having one combined service. If you show up at 1030, you're going to be late. Okay. Most of you all don't get here until 1045 anyway. We know how you are. If you're here at 1045 in two weeks, you're going to be real late. One combined service, we're going to have breakfast at 8.45. Uh, Deacons are sponsoring that. It's a potluck breakfast. We're going to all eat together in this room. And then we are going uh, to have worship at 10. So we hope you come for breakfast, but stay for worship. Uh, some great things. That, I love those days, and I hope that you'll be there for that. We'll be starting into, if you're wondering, uh, we'll be starting into the book of Mark. Uh, New Testament book of Mark is where we'll be all summer long. We'll start that two weeks from today. Uh, I know it's a lot of information. The biggest thing we want you to know is you are loved by a God of infinite grace and supreme glory. And He desires to know you. He desires to have you as one of His children. He desires to show you great and marvelous things like you've never known, even to see the majestic and the mundane. This is our God. Father God, we praise You. We give you thanks and praise and may we leave this place today rejoicing. Rejoicing not in our own victories but in yours. Rejoicing in the salvation that was bought for us at the cross. 
That which was foolishness to the world is the display of the power of God. It doesn't look like we think it ought to look. It doesn't seem like it ought to be that way. But you are different than us. You are holy, set apart. And Father, would you draw us to yourself this week? Show us the miraculous and the mundane. Remind us of our rescue and lead us in the way everlasting as we proclaim this gospel to a lost and dying world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Let's be dismissed this evening.